we search for the same answers But you're asking the wrong questions Ain't it true? You're wondering why bad things Only happen to other people on the Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Wake Up and Smell the Coffee, the podcast packed with some fantastic facts about our natural world. I'm Tom the Blowfish Herd, the world's only heavy metal marine biologist. Thank you very much for joining me today. And as we have been doing in this recent series, we're going to be delving into another one of this world's fabulous ecosystems. And we are looking today, we're going to get... get Make it a little bit chilly, because we're going to be looking at polar seas. Oh yes, we're looking at the Arctic and the Antarctic. We're going to learn some seriously cool facts about them. And just let that sink in for a second. Sorry, I, I had to. <laughs> then we'll see what issues that they are facing, and of course, we'll find out what you at home can do about it. So, let's uh, oh, let's get stuck in now. I think as has been the way for all the environments, the the biomes that we've been looking at in this series, there is a lot to cover. And I, you know, I'm going to try and again try and cover the salient points. If I've missed something, or if you feel that I've you know neglected something, or I perhaps don't spend long enough, I apologise now. Uh, we can we'll get it in series three okay that's what we'll do we'll get it in series three okay so polar seas what are we talking about well there are lots of different seas that are uh, geographically within the polar regions but for the sake of this podcast we are talking about the arctic and the antarctic so the arctic is northern it's in the northern hemisphere and is made nearly entirely of, of sea ice, whereas the Antarctic is in the southern hemisphere, and that is a continent. So there is, if you you know got underneath that big thick chunk of ice, you would find a land mass, all right? So it, there you have this land mass fringed by sea ice, and as I say, the Arctic is actually just a big expanse of ocean, lots of little islands and rocky outcrops dotted in between but that's the differences now technically they are both in theory the same size because if you think about it we are a globe and everything is therefore kind of equal on said globe so the arctic and the antarctic both clocking give or take at about 5.5 million square miles it's they are big okay uh, the exact size of their sea ice extent and, and and their ranges and what counts as this part or that part I'm not going into because you know you are talking about two huge areas this is like me trying to talk about Africa all in one go you know they're two huge areas but essentially 5.5 million square miles and the temperature ranges go anywhere from minus 50 which is a little bit chilly all the way up to a practically tropical 18 degrees. And the lowest recorded temperature that has ever been recorded on planet Earth was minus 89 degrees in the Antarctic. Minus 89 degrees, that's crazy. Uh, and minus 68 degrees in the Arctic. I mean, that is, oof, 
nasty, nasty stuff. Um, so those are its similarities. What about its differences? Well, I think you'd very much be forgiven for thinking, oh, well, you know, they're, they're going to be two of the same. You know, they're two very similar habitats and two ends of the earth, and they're just going to be one and the same. Well, they're actually two incredibly different habitats. All in all, we see a lot more species richness and diversity in the Southern Ocean in Antarctica. And this is due to the fact that it's uh, separate from all the other land masses around it. You've got the Southern Ocean surrounding it. So because of that, it's been, if you will, uh, separated off from everywhere else. And that has allowed life to evolve into a variety of of different habitats and uh, niches and all that kind of stuff. Whereas the the Arctic, there's been a lot of movement around there. So we do get more species and more endemic species, so species found nowhere else, in the Antarctic. And they actually, although there's a lot of ice going on, uh, they both have their own very specific ice ecosystems. It's a good good way of describing it and and then again when you think back just very briefly to the idea of the arctic having no sensible land masses so it's all sea ice whereas the antarctic having this huge land mass so you can have your glaciers and all that kind of stuff and and then you know their fringe of sea ice you can kind of see oh yeah 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 you know there's uh, there's a lot going on here and oh my god there is <laughs> so again i do apologize if you feel that i'm quickly brushing over two of the most unique habitats on planet Earth. Let's have a quick chat about ice. Now, we all know how ice works in our freezers. Water at zero degrees C stops being a liquid and becomes a solid. And you know, for those of you that miss chemistry, uh, basically it's uh, the oxygens line up with the hydrogens and they form this beautiful lattice and all is well and good. And of course, because they form into this very structured lattice we get things like snowflakes you know we know how snowflakes work lovely stuff basically you get these very regimented although highly chaotic and unpredictable structures good times so the formation of sea ice is no different the different i suppose the only real difference here is that it has to be a lot colder than zero degrees for sea ice to start to form now you would normally say it needs to be about minus minus three minus four but a lot of different factors can change that and it could end up being minus one or minus six. Who knows? Again, can't go into it all because we'd be here forever. If you want a, a second extended podcast on polar seas, then more fool you. However, once you, we do actually have conditions that allow sea ice to, to f form, so seawater to freeze, the reason why of course, the water is not freezing at zero degrees, is the presence of salt. I mean, you if you get up early on a winter's morning and you salt your driveway, that ice will melt because it actually lowers the freezing point, meaning that the ice would have to be minus, as I say, minus two, minus three, minus four, for the ice to retain. Of course, it's not that cold, and therefore it melts. So that's what the, the salt does. It just basically gets in the way of the bonds that the hydrogen and the oxygen want to make in water and in doing so means that you've got to put more uh well actually you've got to suck more energy out of the system i.e it's got to be colder for them to push the salt out of the way and say get out of it you i want to form a lattice with my oxygen friends but once you've actually hit that temperature 
and you do get nice and low, you know, minus, uh, like I say, minus four, minus five, whatever it is, then the formation of ice is kind of ish the same as in your freezer. Oxygens and hydrogens start to line up, link up into this lattice structure. And first off, you get something called phrasal ice. And this is probably best described as almost like shavings of ice. So, uh, you know, if you imagine on, a again, a cold winter's morning, you get those wonderful little spikes of, say, hoarfrost that form on uh, bushes and may form on your car. And, that you know, it's like ice dust. That's phrasal ice. So it's they've it's the very start of the whole formation of sea ice. They're just a few molecules that have come together and frozen together. Now you start, you know, supercharging that process and you get more and more and more bits of phrasal ice. And of course, ice floats. So when the phrasal ice forms, it starts to come to the surface and we start to get what's uh, known as an ice slick. So the water starts to actually look like you've spilt oil on it, you know, because you've got all these little tiny little ice cubes floating there now if you've got a choppy sea and there's plenty of currents going on a bit of wind and this that and the other these little lumps of phrasal ice start to come together and they start to stick together themselves but because they're constantly being chucked up and chucked around they can't form into you know these nice regimented patterns and 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 get it all good so they end up making their own little cul-de-sacs and areas where new crystals can't stick to them and they look messy and you basically get something called pancake ice now, it's worth taking the time, actually, to Google pancake ice and have a look at it. Fabulous stuff. And it is exactly as you're picturing in your head. These are circular pucks, pizzas, pancakes, whatever you want, of ice. And they tend to have a thick sort of rim around the edge. And this is where more ice crystals are just higgly-piggly, humble-jumbled, sticking onto the side because temperature is very cold. Ice is forming, but it isn't forming nicely like in your freezer because it's being all churned around. But you do get situations where you don't have strong currents, strong winds, rough seas. And the phrasal ice gets a chance to line up really, really neatly and really, really nicely. And this is where we get something called nihilus ice. And this is very, very beautiful, very pretty ice. And it looks like, uh, oh, well, it, it's a thin, really thin, beautiful sheet of glass that exists across the surface of the water. Again, if you get a chance, have a look at that. Really, really cool stuff. So. We've gone from our tiny little crystals uh, to our pancake ice or our nihilus ice, depending on the conditions. And of course, it's still getting colder. We're getting more ice forming. So once you've kind of got that foundation, either it's the pancake ice that starts, the, the pancakes themselves start to kind of stick together and they, they ride over each other and they start to form these you know, solid lumps, uh, or the nihilus ice just starts to get thicker and thicker, we get now what's called uh, uh, columnar ice. So this is where the leading edge of the water molecule that's right down at the bottom in the, not at the surface, but down at the bottom of the ice in the ocean, it's got a free hand, if you will, to grab onto either a hydrogen or an oxygen, depending on what comes near it. So the crystals start to grow downwards and they start to grow in a, in a very regimented way now because they are just linking together, you know, tab A into tab B, tab A into tab B, and the whole ice sheet starts to grow downwards and just keeps getting thicker and thicker and thicker. 
You do also get some situations where actually ice comes up from the bottom. Um, there are many different geological and uh, topographical features in the ocean that could get super cooled water forming at the bottom of the sea uh, that then, of course, turns into ice, flash freezes, if you will, and then floats to the surface in what we call platelet ice. So the, the bottom of a forming ice sheet can be a bit of a mismatch of still occasional bits of phrasal ice getting in the way, the columnar ice starting to grow nice, good and straight, and then bits of platelet ice just kind of getting in the way and mushing it up. So it doesn't form into a perfect, you know, um, two by four structure when it's done. You have different areas where it's maybe formed beautifully here not so well there you get the idea it's a bit of a jumble but at this point we then end up with what we refer to as annual ice so this is the ice that has formed that year and if it's lucky enough to stay for multiple years guess what it gets called multi-year ice a multi-year ice is very 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 important for the stabilization of the arctic and the antarctic and the creatures that live there because you know here you have an environment which is in quite significant flux for six months of the year and so having ice that retains year on year on year on is very very useful okay uh so i said right at the start when the ice was forming you know, we had to have it extra cold because of the salt what happens to the salt it's a very very good question so the ice that forms the sea ice is not itself salty it is ice ice is just water and there can be things trapped in it but that isn't ice that's something trapped in it the salt itself has to uh, come out of the ice and so as the ice crystals are forming what we get is a, a sort of a honeycomb structure, like a like an ant's nest of all these little tubes and channels in the forming ice sheet that are called brine channels. And it's in these channels that the salt becomes concentrated into brine. So what you get here, and this is very, very cool, what you get here are these incredible open highways if you will up and down through the ice and this is where this brine and the salt is draining out of the ice and because brine it's super salty it's super cold it's heavy it's only going one way it's coming down and as it's coming down it's getting saltier it's getting colder it's an incredible thing now the brine itself is deadly to many many different creatures but because these brine channels go deep into the ice in all various different places, it's a great habitat to try and exploit. So there are various different creatures, different micro microorganisms that have the ability to put up with the freezing cold temperatures, the super high salinity, so they can get up into these brine channels and live there and 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 just take advantage of being the only people strong enough or i say people <laughs> they're not people tiny little tiny little microscopic ice people that live in the channels <laughs> they take advantage of being the only organisms that can get into there and they will thrive because of it but to most creatures certainly in the more complex multicellular creatures the brine channels mean doom and you can get a scenario where as the brine channels they, they become uh, thinner and thinner as they get 
it's lower and lower through the ice sheet, but because they become saltier and colder, they can reach a point where if they break through into the ocean below, they will actually form something that's called a brine sickle. Now, long years ago, uh, Blue Planet, the very first Blue Planet, got some fantastic footage of a brinesicle forming. Again, I would recommend that you watch it. It's very, very interesting. But you've essentially, you've got this spear, this, this, this lightning bolt of super cold, super salty water. So it's only going down and everything that touches it is going to flash freeze okay really really cool stuff please check that out if you can um you'll be amazed it's some fabulous footage and it just goes to show the huge extremes of chemistry that are going on in uh, in our polar regions and it's all to do with the ice forming and shoving the salt out the salt staying in solution getting saltier and saltier colder and colder and actually becoming this laser beam of ice cold death i love it it's good stuff now pack ice itself the the we've so we've got our sea ice now and it's you know stuck together our brine channels have formed we've got some good quality ice and it's it's called pack ice but it is very dynamic it's always shifting it's always moving and you get some very, very key features that occur that life has adapted to. Because I, I'm sure that for, for many of us, you know, you think about the, the Arctic and you will just think of just this white, barren wasteland, snow coming in, you know, howling wind, that kind of stuff. And yes, <laughs> while that is true, it's still active and there's still things going on. Because you have the wind, you've got uh, the, the ocean currents happening underneath you've obviously got the changes in temperatures as either winter sets in or spring sets in it's really really dynamic and very very interesting so one of the first features is something called a lead now this is where a channel opens up in the in the pack ice and the sea ice and this then becomes just this highway for activity and for life i mean animals will they will find leads and they will commute up and down these areas and uh you know humans will commute up and down these areas because it's access up into the sea ice or through the sea ice but the problem is that these leads can open and close as quickly as shaking a stick at a donkey you know it can be bang overnight a lead can appear and then disappear before morning they will appear because perhaps there will be a moment where tidal currents ocean currents are fighting against surface winds and in doing so the ice simply tears apart what you have then a very very interesting little scenario is that obviously the 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 air temperature is very 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 cold but the water that's now suddenly been exposed, because it's not sea ice or sea ice or, or the pack ice is split, and now you have this exposed area of water, relatively, <laughs> that water is actually really warm. So you get this, this steaming effect. This It's actually a, um, uh, a frost haze that comes up from the water. And that's what sailors used to look for. They used to look for these steaming lines of water and they knew, bang, that's a lead, we'll go on it. But the tide could change, the winds could drop, and suddenly those pieces of ice are going to come smashing back together. And as I say, there is many a vessel has been trapped in a lead when it's suddenly closed. 
You do, though, get uh, larger bodies of water which stay open within the pack ice throughout the year or for very extended periods of time. And these are known as polynias. So they can exist over whole winters and they may even return every year. And there is one in the uh, the Arctic, for example, which reoccurs every single year. And it is massive. It covers 20,000 square miles. It's a, it's a big boy. Huge, huge area of, of water that no matter how cold it gets, never freezes over. This seems a, a bit strange. What's going on here? Well, there are a lot of factors that can affect this there will be very specific phenomenon creating that polynia either for it to occur annually or for it to occur that season or whatever it is. And it could be prevailing wind. So, you know, if you've got the phrasal ice being formed, but again, it floats the surface. If the wind is then permanently blowing, say, east-west, the phrasal ice will never be in that space long enough to turn into pancake ice and nihilus ice, and it just gets blown away. So that area will not freeze over. It might be that that's an area of warm water just uprising it's hitting a, a a feature in the ocean an underground mountain or whatnot and it's rising to the surface again stopping those surface waters from freezing or it just could be the prevailing ocean currents which again just keep the water moving through the ice doesn't get chance to stick together and so you get this open body of water which for the indigenous people of the the Arctic, very, very vital. And for the animals of the Arctic and the Antarctic, having these polynias, they're oases in the huge you know, white desert, which I just said it wasn't a white desert. I love being a hypocrite. There are these oases in, the, in these huge sort of extreme deserts that they have to live in. Now, when you've got all this ice moving around, either you know, leads forming and closing or polynias that have ice blowing always into one direction. The ice, it, it can mount up, okay? It's shifting, it's always moving and you get really impressive ice ridges forming above and below the water. And this is driven again, currents and winds, uh, it's exactly how we would get mountains forming on land. You get two plates going towards each other and they'll rise up or they'll dive down or they'll do both. And so the ice ridges that we get, they can be tens of metres tall, but under the water they can get very deep indeed. They can get you know 50 metres or more, meaning that these are some serious structures appearing, certainly in the underwater environment, that provide a habitat that change currents themselves that interact with again the winds and currents going on so if you've got a 10 meter sail appearing on the surface of the ice that's going to catch the wind if you've got a 50 meter long keel appearing under the ice that's going to pick up ocean currents so these areas then are going to put stress on the surrounding pack ice and surrounding ice sheets and potentially create more habitat perhaps they will break off and 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 form a, a new polynia or uh, i mean who knows what we just don't know now there's a little brief mention here uh, this this is a cool one that i was reading up about a so porridge ice okay sounds i'm, I'm basically talking about it because it's called porridge ice but porridge ice little brief mention uh the, if you get an area of uh, exposed ocean 
where the ice is, is forming, but it's not particularly thick, it's not particularly good, it's a little bit thin and wet, and that then mixes with heavy snowfall, you can get something that's called porridge ice. And it is called porridge ice because it looks like porridge. It's horrible, it's lumpy, it's it's kind of thick and slushy, and it does actually have the same consistency as porridge. Now, weirdly enough, porridge ice is actually harder to pass through than metre-thick sea ice because it's so gloopy, its consistency is so sticky that it will hold a ship in place. So an icebreaker would rather hit a five or six metre-thick piece of sea ice than it would get stuck in porridge ice. Okay, so we've uh, we've we formed our ice and it's it's beautiful, it's formed, we've had some pressure ridges that have come up, that's great, we've got some keels, there's even a bit of porridge ice in the corner and a couple of leads knocking around. But eventually, you will come away from the ice and you'll get to the open ocean, or what should be the open ocean, and you get the ice edge. And there's got to be, there's got to be an end to the ice somewhere, I mean, come on. And the, the ice edges are areas of high activity. So here you've got the you know the constant shifting of uh, of the ice. It's shifting. It's breaking. It's melting. It's forming, and that means there's a big flux. And whenever you get flux, you get life. You get activity. So here you'll have flux of chemicals, as you know, salt as we say is being excluded from the ice, but it's taking minerals with it. You perhaps the ice edge will be in an area of higher sunlight or higher temperature so maybe that combined with the minerals is kicking up the biological activity there's food available it's also a very safe place for animals which are unable to penetrate deep into the the center of these polar regions you know maybe they they can't breathe underwater so they need to have access to breathing holes not good if the center of the the antarctic for example is just completely frozen over you can't get there same for the arctic you you're swimming under the ice you don't know what's there but if you're on the ice edge you have access to the land or the ice anyway and the water and you can go here and there move around as needed so the ice edge is an area of really big high activity but it's not a clean it's not a clean kind of edge here you'll always have as I said, the formation of ice, the, the the breakdown of ice. And so the ice edge leads into this kind of patchwork of broken up ice flows where you've got various different pieces of pack ice that have come away, sea ice that's forming. And it kind of, you know, it's like that for a bit before you eventually get into open ocean. So you do get this transitional zone, which guess what? Again, provides fabulous habitat for life. Uh, it's worth mentioning at this point, because um, we will start talking about life soon enough, I do promise. But it's worth mentioning at this point, uh, icebergs. So they don't really play a most monumental part in our story today, but of course they are incredibly famous. Now, icebergs themselves are not really a true part of the pack ice. They're rather, they are, they're freshwater ice. So this is formed over many, many years, either through glacial action or a combination usually of glacial action and snowfall or it can't be rainfall because it's going to turn into snow, isn't it? So it's a combination of, of the, the weather conditions. So these structures are, you know, they are absolutely huge. Some of the icebergs that break off are the size of whales. You know, they are massive. And they'll break off from the ice shelf and they'll move out into sea. Uh, but because of their size, they are, com- well, not completely unpredictable, but certainly very unpredictable regarding their movements. 
we were just talking about the pressure ridges in that you'll get in in the pack ice that you get these keels up and down and sorry the sails up and the keels down that can catch currents catch winds and cause the the pack ice to flex and and shear and, and break well icebergs they are just massive sails or massive keels so they really can move very unpredictably depending on what currents they hit what winds there are what prevailing weather conditions they are and even the makeup of them because they're being exposed to the weather the weather can really twist them and shape them into some fantastic structures which again has an effect moving them around uh, incredible stuff <laughs> i mean this whole realms of science just looking at the prediction of iceberg movements for the safety of shipping vessels and that kind of thing um but they also can be, quite interestingly, multicoloured. So they can be white or blue, or they can be red or green or brown or even black. So why is that? Well, because ice is really a really great place to live. <laughs> as crazy as it sounds, ice, once it is formed, is a, a stable environment. It's a protected environment. There can be a, a real flow um, of nutrients or certainly access to suitable conditions and you can be protected from any overhead conditions because of this big layer of ice. I mentioned, didn't I, very quickly about living in these brine channels. What you do, you get these microorganisms going up into these brine channels, either really small zooplankton or, or chasing the ever-ubiquitous phytoplankton. And for the phytoplankton, if they can get up into a, a brine channel, that's absolutely fantastic because then they will have the sunlight coming down through the ice above. They will not get predated upon by anyone feeding on them because they're not floating around loose in the water underneath. And they will be in a stable set environment. So the colours that we see in these icebergs and in more established pack ice that breaks off, the browns, the reds, the greens, these are actually the photosynthetic pigments of the of the photosynthetic organisms, the diatoms, the dinoflagellates, whatever they are, that are living in the brine channels and in the matrix of the ice. It's a great, great place to live, you know. Now, before we look at some of the, the creatures and how they interact with the ice and, and all that kind of jazz, it's worth mentioning the effects of the polar regions on our global climate. So there has been study into our Arctic and Antarctic for pretty much as long as people have been jumping on boats. If you ever want to read some terrifying stories of science and expedition, look at things that Scott and, and Amundsen were doing, going and exploring these places. They've always been a great magnet for, for life and uh, sorry, for, for they've always been a great magnet for our interest and our science. And because of that, we've actually studied them for quite a long time. We've got quite interesting records. We've got quite good, reliable records of various different factors in the sea ice. And of course, with climate change now very much set in and the wheel of fate spinning for us, more and more effort is being projected towards the polar regions so that we can learn as much as we can about what's there. But in a very simple uh, simple sort of way probably the biggest effect that sea ice has on global climate is or certainly the, the arctic and the antarctic has on global climate is something called albedo so this is a ratio of how much radiation in this case heat is reflected back from a surface 
So a high value means more radiation is reflected back and a low value means more radiation is absorbed. So ice, snow, it's white, it has an it has a high albedo. So that means that that more radiation is being reflected back off and that area is staying cooler. In fact, the, there are some areas of the Antarctic that get huge amounts of solar radiation that would, you know, cook a human in, in minutes. I mean, if you do go to the Antarctic, you're going to have to wear some serious sunscreen. But the ice doesn't melt, it stays cold because it is reflecting this light, this light it's reflecting that heat, it's staying cold. Having a lower albedo, so the... Um, uh, the seawater, for example, that is absorbing heat. And then that's when we get tricky, because if the ice starts to melt and you end up with pools of meltwater forming on the ice, well, that has a lower albedo. It absorbs more heat. That will melt more ice. And you can see you end up on this very kind of slippery slope. The more ice melts, the more fresh water input you have into the currents, uh, around the the polar regions which then go on and directly affect our global climate so it is very important that we get big chunks of ice appearing in the relative arctic or antarctic winters uh, polar regions as well they also fuel the deep ocean circulation so the as the currents of the the world make it to the polar regions they get cold and cold water absorbs more oxygen, so they start taking more oxygen, and then they sink. So what happens is, at the North and South Pole, you're getting this influx of cold, highly oxygenated water going straight down to the bottom of the ocean, into the deep ocean. And if you listen to the deep ocean podcast that I've previously done, you'll know how important that habitat is. That is the biggest habitat that exists on this planet. The majority of life lives in that area. So the Arctic and the Antarctic are acting like a bellows. They are funneling oxygen down into the deep ocean. And that is hugely important i don't need to explain that anymore i mean that is oh they are the lungs of the deep sea all right and as well as oxygen going down there other important nutrients are going down there the 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 byproducts of productivity that we see in the oceans are going down there as well really really important stuff and the polar regions will also act as carbon sinks as well so this this water that's reaching the the polar areas is often quite low in carbon dioxide and therefore carbon dioxide wants to dissolve into it and it does and from there of course it absorbs the co2 great but then before it can become saturated and start kicking it back off into the atmosphere, it actually freezes into either sea ice or it becomes so cold it drops back down into the ocean. So it acts as a carbon sink. So there's huge, massive global effects that these two <laughs> frozen zones on the extremes of our planet have in our everyday life. Wow. Wow. You know, good stuff. Now, look, honest, um, I I could do more. This is the just a whistle-stop tour of, of the conditions we find at our poles. But I also do want to talk about some of the creatures that we find there as well, because they are like no others. And I would be remiss, nay, I'm sure I would be taken out onto the yard arm and given 30 lashes of the cat if I didn't mention polar bears. Now... One thing I love to do is let's bust a myth, all right? 
Polar bears don't eat penguins. They much prefer wagon wheels. But um, sorry, that's I'm sorry. It just it has to happen. Polar bears live in the Arctic. Penguins live in the Antarctic. So polar bears will never eat a penguin unless they can convince someone to go down the corner shop for them and buy them some biscuits you know that's how it is now polar bears they're the largest bear on the planet and it also makes them the largest land carnivore too so we think that the currently the largest polar bear that's ever been found was uh three meters tall and weighed over a ton that is a seriously big beast and you could actually argue quite happily that they are aquatic bears because they are incredible swimmers and they can swim at speeds of six miles uh, an hour for seven hours and in fact one tagged female was recorded swimming for nine days without rest so that is that's you know that's an aquatic animal right there that's in- so impressive um another female polar bear swam non-stop for over 400 miles taking two cubs with her i mean incredible stamina how are you going to swim all that way? Well, you're going to have really, really big paws, and polar bears have got massive, you know, their paws are a full 12 inches across, 30 centimetres. Great for swimming, great for walking over snow, because they're immediate snowshoes. And even though they are massive, they are actually stealth hunters, if you will. Uh, so they they rely on catching animals at that interface between the ice and the water. Uh, they don't catch anything in the water, and they don't really catch anything you know on land as it were if they are on land land then sadly they're probably somewhere like canada or russia and they're probably feeding out of bins so they will actually catch animals that are found as i say in the in the interface usually in the case of seals they're a big fan of ringed seals and ring seals make um cavities under the snow so they'll make a, a breathing hole in the ice the ring seal then digs out this little cavity it's like so mini igloo well your man the polar bear can smell the breath of a ring seal he can actually smell its breath and so they will find these little breathing holes or find these these little um igloos and then jump on the seals just before they can get back into the water and that's the idea is is to creep up onto the the hole and either dive on the seal while it's still um you know sitting around at the surface or punch through the hole and get into it before it can get away so you will quite often see them stalking these breathing holes because they know that animals have to come back there. And desperate polar bears will they will try mad things. They will try getting on things like beluga whales, uh, you know, walrus even. They will do mad things. Um, but their hunts are very unsuccessful. I think they're one of the least successful predators, even though they are the largest land carnivore. I think that they fail 98% of the time which is really, really shocking. But they, being bears, really useful, omnivores. They'll eat whatever they can. They're quite often found, as I say, sadly, they will be found in human habitats, uh, chomping on bins. But they do love a good bit of dead whale. And so they will happily chomp on a whale, chomp on a, a dead uh, a dead caribou if they'll find one. If they go far enough south to get into the areas of vegetation, they'll have berries and plants. They'll eat seaweed. Really clever clever animals incredible things um the bowhead whale okay this is another arctic specialist i love the bowhead whale it's my all-time favorite whale now the bowhead is actually 
a true Arctic whale. Because most whales that we see, I think whales are, are, are very kind of synonymous with uh, polar habitats. But most whales that we see in polar habitats, they're just visiting. They come, like for humpback whales, for example, they come for the summer feed 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 and then when the harsh winter sets in they disappear and humpbacks will go then to the tropics to breed but bowhead whales are there in the arctic all year round and to do that i was just talking about breathing holes for the the seals bowhead whales they've got to breathe as well so they will headbutt through you know meters of ice to keep breathing holes open and in fact their skull has evolved into this special triangular battering ram so they can punch through sea ice which i mean that's just amazing uh, they also have the largest baleen plates of any whale so they're three meters long <laughs> so that's the same length as the polar bear we were just talking about uh, you know they are they're big boys and, and they need it because they need to eat about three tons of copepods a day so it just goes to show, wow, these these animals are, you know, they, they have a huge demand for their food. They're in an area that we look at and go, oh, there's nothing there. It looks terrible and freezing and cold. But no, these are areas of really high productivity. Uh, but they are cold. And uh, the bowhead whale has also the, the thickest blubber layer of any animal, about half a metre. Uh, which keeps it lovely and warm. So warm, in fact, that bowhead whales are actually known to overheat I know that sounds mad, but they will. So if a bowhead whale starts getting too hot, what it will do is it open its mouth and it will take in a mouthful of freezing cold Arctic seawater. And then it has in the roof of its mouth uh, a spongy tissue, which it can pump full of blood, which is entirely analogous to the mammalian penis. It's a spongy tissue filled with blood and then when it reaches that cold water that it's just taken in it acts as a radiator and it allows the whale to cool down very cool uh, another classic from the arctic of course is the narwhal the old uh, uh the old unicorn of the sea um incredible creature there are so many legends about them and oh i mean it, where, where would I start with this one? They are uh, whales, not dolphins, and they're not particularly large. But, you know, it's it's a nice little creature. They'll be about, you know, five metres long, and that doesn't necessarily include the tusk, and they can be quite chunky too. Uh, they have a few differences from their whales, though. So their, their neck bones are not fused together, okay? And this means the guys can, you know, really shake their heads and get moving, which is very useful when that tusk is involved, okay? Uh, they don't have a dorsal fin either, and that's very helpful for swimming under the ice because if you had a, a dorsal fin, it'll get shredded to pieces. Uh, they, they're great communicators. Lots and lots of chat from the narwhals. They will sing, and they have really well-developed what's called a melon organ. So that's the lump on the, the front of their head that allows them to uh, to to well to broadcast this vast array of different sounds and that's really important because they need to communicate when they're hunting and when they're navigating so narwhals are one of those animals that you'll see using the leads through the the pack ice that we talked about before so they really do need to speak to each other and let them know look we're going this way along here or you know there's a breathing hole over there because if they get caught under the ice they will you know they they will cark it uh okay let's just take a quick one go back down to the antarctic so there's a couple of classics there from the north let's go down down the south penguins 
Okay, there's so many different species of penguins in the world, way more than just that classic emperor penguin, but he's the one I just quickly want to mention. So the emperors are the largest of all the penguins. Uh, they uh, will get to about a metre in height, and they will weigh 50 kilograms. And of course, they're well known for the terrible trials that they face in the freezing conditions. They are the most southern breeding bird. And if you didn't already know, if you've been under a rock for all this time, the males and females uh, mate in the centre of uh, the Antarctic, or certainly damn close to the centre of the Antarctic. They have areas that they will go back to, their rookeries that they go back to year on year on year. And then once they've mated and the female has laid her egg, the female then disappears. She does one, she goes back to the sea, and the male stays there keeping the egg balanced on his feet underneath his luscious pelt of feathers. And they then suffer the cruelest, cruelest conditions that you wouldn't wish upon your worst enemy. We're talking permanent night, you know, howling winds, minus 40, minus 50 degrees is vicious stuff. And to survive this incredible trial they will bunch together they form into these rotating mosh pits of uh, of birds and they basically take it in turns for each bird to kind of weather the worst of the storm and then when they get too cold they move around and they get snug again but it does work it does work and and what it means is that in the spring when the weather improves and the females return they are protected from all the predators. They, there's no one going to fuss them. They've got their chicks ready to rock and roll. And as the sea ice then decreases over the summer, their rookery ends up closer and closer to the sea ice edge, closer and closer to food. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Okay, sponges. Now, usually I get into a lot of grief when I start talking about sponges, but this is cool. So... As you probably guessed, under the ice is actually the best place to live if you're a polar creature. And the benthic communities that we see in the Arctic and the Antarctic are really, really vibrant. So these are the creatures that live on the seabed. Things from big old worms to sea spiders, uh, amphipods, uh, you know, types of soft coral you know, crustaceans, sea stars, sea urchins, you name it. But one of the most incredible for me are the sponges. So these fantastic filter feeding organisms, probably one of the first multicellular life on planet Earth, they they do wonderfully in the cool and... Well, cool, that's, that's putting it mildly, isn't it? They do wonderfully in the freezing cold and the dark of the, the deep polar seas. Now, there's a type of sponge in the Antarctic called the white volcano sponge. And it is potentially, it's potentially up there for the oldest living organism on the planet. So some of these sponges have been recorded at two, two meters tall and 500 kilos, so half a ton. And scientists, using a good old bit of maths, have worked out you know growth rates and all this, that and the other. And therefore, it is estimated that a two-meter-tall, 500-kilogram white volcano sponge could be, or has the potential to be, 10,000 years old. And that just sets it apart from everything else. 
they grow really, really slowly. Uh, it's because of this uh, cold temperatures. Their metabolism is, is slowed down, but it allows them to live these incredible lives and also grow to these massive sizes as well. And the sponges, and indeed the entire benthic communities, feed on the bursts of productivity from the seas above. So the polar summers, everything's kicking off. It's all happening up there. So there's a lot of food that drops down. And it was thought for a long time that these benthic communities didn't feed at all during the extended polar winters, and they just kind of had to subsist. But actually we have shown that they are feeding actively through these periods and it's thought that these underwater currents that are moving the ice above also help kick up and stir up the sediments and the organic materials around these benthic communities so they can continue to feed. Now you can't mention the Antarctic without mentioning krill or Pacific krill in this case. To be specific we're talking about South Pacific krill. That was a hell of a mouthful. (laughs) Krill are probably the, they're certainly up there in one of the most vital organisms of planet Earth. So they are this incredible keystone species to the Southern Ocean, which is, you know, the, the largest unbroken expanse of ocean on the planet. It goes right the way around. Right? They are the food for blue whales, the largest animal that has ever existed, not to mention everything else, leopard seals, crab, uh, crab eater seals, uh, you know, tuna, uh, sharks, oh, everything has a munch on krill. And there's quite a few of them. So while we cannot be sure, there was an estimate done a few years ago suggesting that krill numbers, or the total mass rather, not the number, so this isn't the number of krill, this is its combined mass, would reach 1.5 billion tonnes. And to give that some kind of, uh, some, some kind of uh, banana for scale, the combined mass of humans is 0.5 billion tons so they are three times more massive than us that's how how many there are i mean we're talking countless trillions of individuals because they're not big they're small shrimp-like creatures that feed on zooplankton and phytoplankton so that's why they are so important in providing this link in the food chain from the phytoplankton that are you know using all that beautiful sunlight all that lovely sunlight that you get in those long Arctic and Antarctic summers, oh, sucking that in. It's the krill that are chomping them down, turning that carbon uh, carbon dioxide. It's the krill that's chomping them down, turning that carbohydrate into their own proteins and their own fats, and then allowing other things, well, not allowing, but then being munched by other things, and so connecting that food web. And they are the most incredible creatures to study they are completely unpredictable in where they will appear and in what numbers they will appear they just suddenly turn up we cannot predict where they are but ocean life can which is great i think that's fantastic and because they have to do such harsh conditions they are bound to the the edge of the sea ice and there are times when there's just no food in in the deep in the arctic winter there's not going to be as much photosynthesizing nay there might be no photosynthesizing from uh, the the plankton there so they have the ability to shrink from their adult form back to their juvenile form when food becomes scarce and that's really really clever 
Uh, now, one of the creatures that feeds on krill, like I say, everything feeds on krill, but one of the fe- uh, creatures that uh, feeds on krill in the Antarctic are Weddell seals. And they, they breed further south than any other mammal on Earth. And because of that, they, like the bowhead whale, they need to keep this breathing hole open through the winter so that they can continue popping in and out of the water and seeing what's what and who's who. So how do you do it? Well, the bowhead whale would headbutt the ice. Good one. The Weddell seal, he uses his teeth. So Weddell seals physically chew the hole to keep it open. They will rake their teeth side to side on their breathing hole. And in doing so, they wear their teeth down. And so it is estimated that Weddell seals die exponentially younger than they need to because they have no teeth. And they don't have a dentist to go and get some dentures. So they will starve to death long before they reach a grand old age. Finally, talking about a grand old age, I just wanted to mention, you all know me, I'm a big shark guy, I just wanted to mention the Greenland shark. This is possibly the oldest living vertebrate on the planet. So we're not talking our sponges here, this is a vertebrate, it has a a backbone. And they're estimated to be somewhere between 200 and 400 years old, maybe more, okay? They're the same size as a great white, so you're talking over six metres, weighing over a tonne, but they always seem to get forgotten. They're really slow swimmers. It's freezing cold. Why swim fast? There's no need. They're really, really slow swimmers, and they will specialise in feeding on on carrion. So they will eat anything that falls into the water that isn't going to swim away. You know, dead seals, dead polar bears, um, caribou. A whole reindeer was found in the stomach of one particular Greenland shark. Uh, Otherwise, they will actually be ambush hunters. Because they swim so very slowly, they will try and attack prey that's asleep. Because they can basically creep up on it without disturbing it. Um, But the final thing I just wanted to mention about Greenland sharks is a real mystery and it just goes to highlight the amount of mystery that still remains in our polar regions even now. Greenland sharks are known, well known, for having small copepods, tiny crustaceans, physically attached to their eyes. Now the presence of these copepods renders the shark blind. It doesn't affect their hunting in any way, shape or form. They still hunt fine. But they cannot see. It renders them blind. The copepod itself glows So these massive six-meter-long sharks that swim so slowly through the water in the dark and the the cold and the bleakness have these deep green glowing eyes. I think that's pretty creepy, but also totally amazing. Wow, okay, that that was a hell of a rundown of just some of the creatures that we find in the polar regions. But now... We're going to have to look at some of the issues facing our our polar seas. The big one is climate change. The big one is climate change. It has so many knock-on issues. Uh, we start to lose the sea ice. That means that we get more water. I, I mentioned it briefly before. We get more fresh water entering our oceanic systems. That affects our ocean currents, and that affects our climate. That cha- That means that we get end up with snow in Texas. You know, that's climate change happening right there. You get other effects, though. The, you get a lot of methane released from ice as it melts. You know, it, it, ice is holding a lot of gases, gases from that are formed organically and inorganically, and that all gets released. Methane is far worse than CO2. It's 80 times more potent as a greenhouse gas. You lose the ice, more methane. 
we could see a slowdown or a stoppage in those deep ocean currents. And again, if you listen to the last podcast, you'll know exactly how important that is. And obviously, if you lose the sea ice, you lose this incredible habitat. This this habitat that doesn't exist anywhere else. You know, they are the most productive seas on the planet, our polar seas. We cannot afford to lose lose them. The production, the effort, the the just the life that occurs in the, those very limited latitudes they are that's what's keeping the rest of the planet going all right i know it doesn't sound believable but they are so important for us all even though they're absolutely on the other end of the earth and now of course the polar regions are suffering from things like plastic pollution you know you've got people like russia wanting to go into antarctica and start drilling for oil now that the Arctic has melted so much, shipping companies are saying, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll go through it. We can suddenly pass over the top of the Earth in what is an Arctic winter because there isn't enough sea ice. You know, really bad stuff like that. It's not good at all. And as, again, as the sea ice then comes away and humans can get in and get, get involved, you've got deep sea mining, which is rearing its terrifying head. You know, we're suddenly exploiting these areas which are under huge threat. We're kicking them when they're down and we shouldn't be doing it. We're even overfishing them. We're trying to find these huge shoals of krill that for us are often just ground up and put into seafood mixes or they might be used as, you can, you can get like oils from um, health shops, you know, krill oil. You don't need it, all right? Really, really bad. Don't go and target the key workers of the ocean because it will cause a big knock-on effect to us to us not to anyone else to us so what can you do to solve it well really think about how your carbon footprint affects the planet implement change and it doesn't matter if it's a small change it can be a small change when they all add up you get a big difference and don't be afraid to make that change if you think oh i could do this do it i'm never asking you to never drive a car again but if you can walk to the shops once or twice, do it. It's a small change, and it will make a big, big difference. Right? Watch out for what, uh, watch out for what fish you eat. You know, look for products that have you know, Arctic krill on them or Antarctic krill. Avoid them. Don't eat krill. Don't go anywhere near krill. Okay. If in doubt, download the Marine Conservation Society Good Fish Guide, and that will tell you exactly what fish you can eat. It'll tell you where it's caught. If it's a good thing to eat. That makes a big difference. Again, it's a small change for you, big difference for the environment. And of course, as always, support ocean charities, all right? Very, very important. Support ocean charities. And I would ask you as well, perhaps, to check out the Seed Bankulator from Primordial Radio, which allows you to help try and offset a bit of your carbon through suggested donations to the project seagrass because seagrass is a great way of protecting our climate and protecting some of our nursery seas so check that out as well the seed banculator don't forget though ladies and gentlemen these these areas are so they're so extreme we have to go through so much to try and even visit there let alone live there so they are wilderness all right they are wilderness and that has a double whammy one it means that it's hard for us to get there which means we probably won't try and get there good good and two the extremes of the the weather conditions the ocean conditions everything like that it drives them back towards equilibrium 
it drives them back towards the good stuff. So if we can just give them an inch, I promise you, they will take a mile. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed. Thank you so much for listening. I will be back soon with another incredible ecosystem and some wonderful stories to tell about it. Until then, be awesome to the earth and each other, and I will see you next time round. Wondering why bad things only happen to other people on the news.